How does knowing the story of the Bible help us make sense of our lives? Find out today on the Central Baptist Podcast as Pastor Barton teaches us how the Christian narrative is the story that makes sense of our stories. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 or follow along on the sermon notes handout. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, well, this spring we are asking uh, the question of what story makes the best sense of this giant story of the universe that we just all have found ourselves born into. And uh, now at this point in the series, today and next week as well, we're considering the question of what story makes the best sense of what's wrong with the world? You can't fix something unless you know what's wrong with it. And so we're pondering on this question because, of course, don't even need to give any illustrations, our world is often a mess and our personal lives are often a mess. So what's wrong with the world? Today and next week, I'm going to break a little bit with what I've been doing throughout this series where we compare and contrast various stories. And just for today and next week, what I actually want to do is just look at the Judeo-Christian story and its answer to this question of what's wrong with the world still in our series in Genesis 1 to 3. And then we'll do our last part where we'll do some comparing and contrasting in the weeks to come. Genesis 3 says there was a moment when everything went wrong. And you can think of this perhaps like a river that's become polluted. If a river's become totally polluted and you live way downstream, uh, that's kind of like our lives in this world. We know all kinds of things are wrong with it. If you want to know how it's polluted, what happened, of course you need to go upstream and find the source of the pollution. So what we're doing today and next week is we're kind of starting down in our own lives amongst the mess and the pollution, but now we're going back upstream and we're going to Genesis chapter 3 to discover what happened because Genesis, Genesis 3 says that this event, what happened here, is ground zero in a catastrophic event that spiritually polluted God's good creation. So that's what we want to do. In one sense, this chapter is the serpent's, uh, the account of the serpent's temptation of Adam and Eve, but in another sense, it actually also applies to us today, because what we could say is, in one sense, it's their temptation, not ours, but in another sense, it's all of our temptations. 
This is the most relevant, the most practical chapter you can possibly imagine because this really is what I'm going to show you, the prototypical temptation. You know what a prototype is? A prototype is an original of which everything else is a copy, right? This is really the prototypical temptation. In other words, every single temptation we face today is but a copy of this original. So if we can understand what went wrong with Adam and Eve, we can maybe understand what went wrong with us. If we can understand what went wrong with them, maybe then we can also see what could be done about it. Is there any hope for this? And then, of course, is there any hope for us and for our world? Now, I stirred things up a little bit at the end of last Sunday when I said this is one of my, maybe one of my favorite sermons. And then everybody said, so it's your best sermon? I said, no, I didn't say my best. So let's just lower the bar. And uh, I said favorite, and here's why. Because the truths we're going to look at today, to me, anyways, you can decide for yourself, the truths that we're going to look at today are some of the most profound, the most deep, they go down to the bottom of everything, and then the answers to them also go down to the bottom of everything in our lives. Okay, so by the end, it'll all come together, uh, Lord willing, and then you can decide if it's your favorite sermon. I can say it's mine. In Genesis 3, we see that the serpent's temptation came in two parts. I'm going to call part one, he speaks in two parts, that's why it's two parts. Part one, I call it the, be- or the friendly joke, and part two, I call it the beautiful lie. This morning, I want to look at part one, the first time the serpent speaks, and look at the friendly joke, and then next week, we'll look at part two, uh, which I will simply call the beautiful lie. Now, what I want to show you today is that the only reason we ever buy into the beautiful lie that we're going to look at next week is because we first join in with the friendly joke. Where is he going with all this? A very simple three-part outline. First of all, the friend. Second, the joke. And third, the punchline. Let's start then with part one. I just call it the friend. The friend. Here's the main thing I want to show you. In temptation, Satan always presents himself as a helpful friend who's only looking out for our best interests. In temptation, the serpent always presents himself as just a helpful friend who's only looking out for our best interests. He did it with Adam and Eve, and he does it with us today as well. So look with me at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now first, I just want you to notice how the serpent, how last week we defined the serpent as Satan. You can go back and check that if you want to hear the background on that how he does not present himself, first of all, okay? Notice that he does not kind of burst into the garden like a, 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 a flames of fire everywhere, like some sort of Hollywood demon with pyrotechnics going off everywhere. Not at all. He comes quietly, comes peacefully. Notice also, he does not attack Eve directly. This is not a direct attack. He doesn't say something like, Eve, this God you believe in, uh, he doesn't actually exist. He does not say that. He doesn't do any more of this kind of Hollywood stuff or all the ideas we have. He doesn't say, hey, Eve, let's get drunk, let's draw a pentagram on the ground, and let's plot how we can kill your husband. I mean, that's always what we think of when we think of Satanism and those kind of things. There's no blood sacrifices here, nothing like that. Not at all. 
The serpent comes as a friend. He just wants to have a nice, pleasant, theological conversation. It's like, Eve, you know, there's just something that's kind of been bothering me. It's been on my mind. My, my mind. I'm, I'm concerned about you. Uh, Eve, you know, can you just clarify for me what God said about this whole not eating from the tree rule? Because, I, I don't know, it just it strikes me like it's, it's, it's hindering you. It's, it's taking away your freedom and, and kind of holding you back from how you could be truly happy. So that's the first thing that we see in this passage. Notice how the serpent does not come and how the serpent does come. The first thing we learn is how the devil tempts us. In temptation, Satan always presents himself as a helpful friend who is only looking out for our best interests. Okay, so that's part one, very short, very simple. Now let's come to part two, which I'm going to call the joke. We're going to spend most of our time here. Let's look more closely at the serpent's question. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, I want you to see here, it's, it's like the serpent is just coming across a little surprised. Like, what? what? There's I mean, even a little bit of lighthearted laughter here. I mean, Eve, <laughs> I, I've heard about this rule. But, I mean, I clearly, I must have heard wrong. I mean, did, did God actually say that? Lighthearted? Is, it's a bit of a joking laughter going on here? Like, no, I, 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 I must be wrong about this. I want to show you that in this one little question, there's an entire universe of rebellion. I want to show you that in this question is the heart of all that is wrong with the world and all that is wrong with your life and mine. Here's what I want to show you. This is not a question at all. It's not a question. It's a statement disguised as a question. It's like when I was a teenager and my parents had curfews for me and uh, at one point my curfew was 10.30 at night and let's just say I was out with some friends uh, for a little while and uh, some of my friends had curfews that were a little bit later than mine, some had a, a curfew that was the same as mine and let's say you now it was 10.15 and some of my friends who had later curfews, they said, hey, let's go to Blockbuster and rent a video. Now some of you have no idea what that sentence meant. Shows how old I'm already getting. What is this buster of blocks? I don't know. Look it up on the internet. The most glorious thing was Friday night trying to get yourself a video on the new release section back at Blockbuster. Can I get an amen to that? Like, come on. That was a fun experience. So that's how we used to rent videos. If you don't know what I'm talking about, never mind. So my friends at 10.15 say, hey, let's go rent a video. Uh, but my curfew's at 10.30, and so I have to say, no, actually, I got to head out now because uh, I got to head home. And maybe somebody who has a later curfew may say something like, did your parents actually say you have to be home at 10.30? And maybe some of the, the other ones who have a later curfew might kind of chuckle with a little bit of laughter, like kind of what a joke this is, you have to be home so early. But listen, that's not really a question, is it? Did your parents actually say you have to be home at 10.30? That's not a question. It's a statement disguised as a question. It's a statement really that says your parents and their rules are a bit of a joke. But that short question has tremendous power, doesn't it? Think about that. In a split second, 
That single question does at least five things to my heart, at least five things in just a split second. First of all, it narrows my focus down onto this one rule my parents have given me for my curfew and totally ignores everything my parents have ever done for me and all the good things they've done in my life. It ignores all of them and focuses my attention on just one rule. Secondly, it suggests my parents are unfair and do not have my best interests in mind. Third, it implies that I probably know better, at least my friends do, know better than my parents what is in my best interests. Fourth, it invites me to stand in judgment over top of their rule, because now this rule is appearing to me a little bit differently, isn't it? And finally, it provides me with an opportunity to make a choice. But now, with all those other things that have happened, the choice appears in a different light to me. Forgetting all the good things, it appears in a different light and it could appear like I can follow my strict parents and their overly harsh rules or I can make my own decisions and I can choose my own freedom and my own happiness, break the curfew and come home whenever I want. But I never did that, did I? Nope, I did not. Let's, let's be clear. Unless I had a good excuse, they're going to debrief with me later. All of this is hidden in the serpent's question. You see how powerful this is? The serpent narrows their focus down onto the one rule God gave. The, the question suggests that God is being unfair. It implies that Eve knows better than God does what is good for her. It invites her to stand in judgment over God and to make her own choice. And now the choice, though, appears in an entirely different light. It appears, should I follow this overly strict God and his harsh rules that are really quite a bit of a joke, or should I be free and pursue my own happiness and not obey him? Well, let's contrast the serpent's words with what God actually said. He said, did God actually say? What did God actually say about the tree? Let's go back to chapter 2 and verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, notice this, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Notice how God begins. God begins by emphasizing they may surely or freely eat. The serpent begins with not that. The serpent begins by emphasizing how restricted they are. God says you're free to eat. The serpent says you're not free. You're restricted. Notice also God emphasizes that they can eat from every tree. It seems like this whole garden's filled with trees. You've got an orchard. You've got every type of tree, every type of fruit you could possibly imagine but the serpent wants Eve to focus on the restriction. And so he exaggerates the rule. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden is the question. That's never what God said. God did not say you're not allowed to eat of any tree. He gave all the trees. You can eat of every tree, just not the one tree. So do you see what is actually going on here now? Do you see how the serpent is attacking Listen, the serpent is not making an argument. He's trying to create an atmosphere. An atmosphere that is suspicious of God's true motives. The serpent is not trying to debate facts. He is trying to create an attitude. An attitude that doubts God's good intentions. 
The serpent is really saying, Eve, I mean, if God makes all such strict rules for your life, perhaps he doesn't actually have your best interests in mind. Maybe he's not as good as you were originally led to believe. It's all a bit of a joke, Eve, and if you really want to be free, then as we're going to see next week, you should make your own decisions. The serpent isn't attacking God's existence. Listen, he's attacking God's character. This is character assassination. That's what's going on here. All of that within this one little question. It is one giant attempt at character assassination. But let's be crystal clear here. What part of God's character is the serpent attacking? What part of God's attributes do you think it is? Is, it, is he attacking God's holiness? I don't think so. Maybe in some roundabout way. Uh, is he attacking God's character of mercy? Eh, I don't think so. It's probably not the main one anyways. No, I think the serpent is attacking God's goodness. His goodness. This one question is designed to make Eve doubt the very goodness of God. Character assassination. Now, press pause on everything that we've thought so far and talked about so far. There's a whole other way to see this, and it's really powerful, and it will come together at the end of the message in an incredible way to see how God's character is being attacked and specifically how really ridiculous it is to doubt the goodness of God. But it's a totally different way. So press pause on everything else right now and track with me on, on this one. This way would not have been clear to Eve, at least not directly in the way I'm going to say it. But it is meant to be clear to us as the readers of Genesis and particularly to the original readers of Genesis, which were, of course, the people of Israel. And you can see it in the way that God is referred to in Genesis 1 to 3. So let me take a long rabbit trail right now, and then it's all going to work its way back and it's all going to dovetail together. Okay, so track with me on this long rabbit trail right now. There is a sharp contrast between the way that God is referred to in Genesis chapter 1 and the way that God is referred to in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Very sharp contrast between those two. Can you think what it might be? How God is referred to? In Genesis chapter 1, God is referred to 35 times. He's everywhere in Genesis 1. And every single time it is with the title God, which is the generic term for the supreme being. Of course, in Genesis 1, this stresses God's great power in creating the universe. Okay? Then you come to Genesis chapter 2, and there is a radical shift. If we take out this little dialogue between Eve and the serpent, God is again referred to many times, 20 times, through Genesis chapters 2 and 3. But listen, aside from this little dialogue, he is never referred to as God. In every single case, he's referred to as Lord God. That never happens in Genesis 1, but it always happens in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Lord God, you see it, for instance, here's Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God. If it was Genesis 1, there'd be no Lord. It would just say God. But in Genesis 2 and 3, that is always the case. So Genesis 1 is always God, and Genesis 2 and 3 is always, except for the little dialogue with the serpent, always Lord God. 
Okay, now what does this mean? What is Lord? Notice that Lord is capitalized. Every other, it's in all caps. This is really important uh, because it's not referring to Lord, uh, you know, like, like the English in their titles. Lord Buckingham, we'll see you in the parlor now. It's not that kind of a Lord. That's not, what, whenever you see it all caps like that, it's never a title like an English title for Lord. That's not it at all. Get that out of your head. Uh, you have to think of it in a totally different way. It's not a title. It's God's personal name. So Lord, in all caps, is God's name, which is Yahweh, or I am who I am. It refers to God's name. So I would actually suggest to you, whenever you're reading in your English translations, to always substitute Lord capitalized with Yahweh. And the reason why is, because I don't know about you, I can never think of Lord as anything but a title. I can't think of it as a name. Uh, there's a whole history in translation. If you look at the beginning of your Bible, you can read about it. I'm sure it will say it in the beginning of your Bible. But I would suggest that you do that. This is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush when he was going to enter into a covenant with his people Israel, rescue them out of slavery, and make them to be his people. So we need to know that Yahweh is God's name. But here's the other part of it. Yahweh, or sorry, names in the Old Testament, and especially God's names, always teach us about what God is like. It's not like just my name, Barton, okay? My name means from a barley town. It means, there's no great name. It's, there's no, it means nothing about who I am, uh, especially when it comes to barley. But in, in old times, names meant something about what you are like. And God's name, Yahweh, tells you what he is like. And it should tell you two things. Memorize what we're about to say. This is gold, okay? First of all, Yahweh means God is self-existent. I am who I am. He is the God who is self-existent, which means he does not need anyone or anything to exist. He has life in himself. Unlike you and I, you need breath. You need air just to exist. You need food. You need water. You, you are a dependent creature. You are not self-existent. God, on the other hand, is the I am who I am, the self-existent God. But secondly, note this, Yahweh means God is with and for his covenant people. He is with and for his covenant people. When he gave his name to Moses, he promised to be with Israel and be their God and to be for Israel and to deliver them from slavery and to be always with and for them. Soon as he gives his name, that promise comes right on it. So the name of God is not just some name out there. It's the covenant name that God gives to his people saying, I am the self-existent God who is with you and for you. So bring it all together then. When you read cap all caps, Lord God, it means Yahweh God, which means the self-existent God who is with us and for us. So my personal thing, when I read the Old Testament, which I think it comes up 6,500 times in the Old Testament, Lord, capitalized, every time I read it, I always substitute it with the self-existent God who is with us and for us. It's a mouthful, but boy, does it communicate a lot. The self-existent God who is with us and for us. Now, why does this all matter? If you're an ancient Israelite reading Genesis, or even if you're a modern person doing it, you read Genesis chapter one and you read about God, this great supreme being, this powerful being who created the universe. Then you get to Genesis chapter two and you never just hear about God again. God now has a name. God, it's not just some generic supreme being, great spirit creator of the universe, no. 
You get to Genesis chapter two and you read that this sovereign creator is none other than Yahweh, the God of Israel, the self-existent God who is with and for his people. So as you read Genesis two then, you just keep coming across. Yahweh God, Yahweh God, Yahweh God. And Yahweh God keeps doing things all through Genesis two. And here's the big point. Every single time Yahweh God does something, it's always to do something good in creating for his universe. It's always something good. So we don't have time to track this, but of course, in Genesis 2, it is Yahweh God. That is, the self-existent God who is with us and for us, who plants the garden for people to live in. He doesn't give them a concrete box to live in. He plants a garden for them. It is Yahweh God, the God who is with us and for us, then who fills this garden with good trees to eat from. It is Yahweh God, the God who is with us and for us, who gives Adam life and who walks and talks with him in the garden. It is Yahweh God, the God who is with us and for us, who then gives Adam a wife who is so beautiful and so perfectly complimentary to him, he bursts out into poetic song. Just as your heart is being filled time and time again with Yahweh God, Yahweh God, you're reading about all that he's doing for and with his people, all of a sudden, there's a break. And the break happens when the serpent speaks. Here's what we read. He said to the woman, did God actually say, notice it doesn't say Yahweh God, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Why this sudden break from Yahweh God all through Genesis 2, now getting into Genesis 3, why this sudden break of Yahweh God now just to God? Well, the most simple answer is, God did not reveal his name until the time of Moses, so Eve would not have known his name, so it makes sense within the context of their discussion. However, this is not just the discussion of Eve and the serpent. It's also us as the readers of Genesis. We know who this Yahweh God is. We know about the history of Israel, and we're reading along going, this is the God who's with and for his people over and over again. And then all of a sudden, it's just God. It's certainly not wrong to refer to God simply as God, but as readers, having read Genesis 2, we want to scream, Eve, no, no, no. This, this serpent is casting doubt upon Yahweh God, the God who is with us and who is for us. His goodness is absolutely everywhere. Eve may not have known his name, but she should have known how good he is and how much he is with and for his creation simply by the world that she was brought into. But the serpent's friendly joke has clearly caused Eve to question the goodness of God. She might not know his name, but she knows his goodness. So look at Eve's response. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Two things in her response reveal to us that she is beginning to doubt the goodness of God. First of all, notice that Eve does correct the serpent's exaggeration when he says they're not allowed to eat from any of the trees. He, she corrects that and she emphasizes how generous God is and God had said you can freely eat of all the trees in the garden. But notice she does not speak about how they are freely allowed to do it. She just corrects the facts, but she doesn't emphasize the positive that they're freely allowed to eat. She's forgetting just how much God is with her 
and for her. And then secondly, she adds, they're not even allowed to touch the tree. Did God say they were not allowed to touch the tree? That was nowhere in his command. Maybe they're allowed to touch a major they weren't, but it, no, nowhere in chapter 2, verse 16, did God say, you're not even allowed to touch the tree. It seems like Eve is now overstating the rule. It seems like God is maybe a little bit harsh to her now. We, not only can we not eat it, we're not even allowed to touch it. Like God, just, he's, God is appearing a little more restrictive, a little more harsh towards her. Her confidence in the goodness of God is wavering. So then let's bring this all together now taking everything we said, dovetail everything together. Here's how I'll put it. The starting point of every temptation occurs when we doubt the goodness of God. When God's rules seem like a bit of a joke to us, we become skeptical that God actually has our best interests in mind. Once you've bitten down on that worm, the hook is already in your mouth. Once you begin to doubt that God does not really have your best interests in mind, it's just one short step from believing the beautiful lie, which we'll look at next week, a beautiful lie that basically says, if you want to be free and happy, go it on your own. Do it your own way. Forget what this overly strict God has said. But listen, the only reason we ever believe the beautiful or yeah the only reason we ever believe the beautiful lie is because we have first bought in to the friendly joke where god and his rules all seem like a bit of a joke to us it's all a little bit ridiculous it's all a little bit overly harsh and we don't really believe that he's the god who is with and for his people that's how it all starts now let me just make this really practical because why I say this is so important is this suspicion of the goodness of God, this is under everything. It's in everything. It's under everything. Let me just start with some most obvious examples and move to more less obvious examples. I was the other day listening, re-listening to a debate uh, with the late Christopher Hitchens, one of the most famous atheists in the world. And uh, part of his argument against the existence of God is he said, even if God did exist, he says, I would not want the universe to be like that because that would mean we would all live in a, to quote him, a celestial North Korea. A celestial North Korea. Now he went on then to say, because if there's a supreme being who can read our thoughts, who can condemn us for our thoughts, it's like we live with this giant dictator over all things and none of us are truly free because we're all under the thumb of this celestial dictator who can condemn us even for our thoughts. You can see, he's not just suspicious. He believes, he, he is utterly convinced if there's a God, human beings are not free. We will never find happiness because we will always be under the thumb of this celestial dictator. So that's clear. He, he just comes out right and says it. Doesn't just doubt the goodness of God, that God could maybe not be a dictator but a good God. He just assumes that's the way it would be. A little bit less obvious but still very obvious. I don't think most people would say this out loud or maybe be so harsh about it, but I think you can see it under every single form of sexual sin there is. God gives his, what would be his good rules on sexuality to us. But look around our culture at all the scorn that gets heaped upon God's idea of how sexuality should be expressed. 
Why do people do this? Why do people live together before marriage, commit adultery, engage in casual sex with people of the opposite sex or the same sex or watch pornography or engage in any number of sexual, what the Bible would call sexual sins? What is it that's going on there? Listen, this is why I'm saying it's so practical. Under it all, under it all, is the belief that God's rules are a bit of a joke. That God is a bit of a joke. That his rules are kind of ridiculous and they will only ruin our freedom and they will hold us back from experiencing true happiness and true joy. And so then that's why next week we'll say we break out on our own and we do it however we want. But under it all, this is what I'm saying, this is so practical, under it all is a suspicion that God is truly good. Even a little less obvious now. How about anxiety over finances? And I mean specifically for Christians. Those who've come to faith in Jesus Christ and the stress and the anxiety we face often over uh, our basic needs being covered. I don't mean over excesses or luxuries or things like that. Did not Jesus say that God our Heavenly Father is so good to us that he who would even care for the sparrows to make sure that they get to eat, who clothes the grass of the field even better than Solomon ever had clothes, the rich Solomon. He says, if you seek God first, put him first in your life, and you're seeking him, and you seek to live rightly before him, you're pursuing God, he's first in your life, then Jesus promised that the good father would provide all these other physical necessities to you as well. In other words, what Jesus is trying to do is say in his kingdom, he doesn't want his followers to be filled with anxiety and stress and worry over are basic essentials that we need for life, food, clothing, housing, these types of things. It should produce, produce great peace. And yet, listen, is not anxiety, under anxiety, is it not all a suspicion that God the Father is actually good and will care for us? Isn't that what's under all anxiety? I'm not sure if God will do it. I'm not sure that he'll come through. I'm not sure he's as good as Jesus promises that he is. Or when life falls apart and we are truly suffering, so often it's our first instinct to blame God, be angry with him, to pull away from him, or even to reject him. Underneath it all, we don't really believe that he is good. The serpent's great strategy against humanity is right here. We're at the, at the fountainhead of all the pollution that comes out, out later on. His great strategy in his war against humanity is to launch a full-out assault on the goodness of God. That's his great strategy. He bends all his will and all his effort on getting you and I to become suspicious of God, to think that God and his rules are all a bit of a joke that are holding us back from true freedom and true happiness. For when you doubt the goodness of God, you're only one short step away like Eve and Adam from believing the beautiful lie that if you just broke away from this God, you'd experience true happiness and true freedom and make up your own rules. That's the friend and that's the joke. Now let's come in the final place to talk about the punchline. The serpent may have tried to make God and his rules out to be a bit of a joke, but it's God who delivers the punchline. It's God who shows that this question in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, did God actually say this, this kind of a joke of a question? It's God who shows that this question came from a forked tongue, that it came from the liar and the father of all lies. 
It's God who puts all of this to rest. In this point, what I want to do in this final part, this is what I'm praying is going to happen, that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would wash our hearts of this toxic belief, this suspicion that God is not good. Just like, you know, when birds get caught in an oil spill and then they become very unhealthy, they cannot fly, they need to be washed, they need to be cleansed of all the toxic chemicals that have come upon them. All of us, I am suggesting, every single one of us have been covered in the oil that doubts the goodness of God so that we are not spiritually healthy and we cannot fly. And so what I'm praying God would do right now in this final few minutes together is that he would wash us. He would wash us of our doubts. He would wash us of our suspicions about his goodness, that we'd see him for true he truly is, that we'd be healthy and we would fly. May God do that. There's at least three things here I want to quickly show you that should wash our hearts from doubts regarding the goodness of God. The first one is this. Creation proves that God is good. Creation does. Want to get rid of those doubts in your heart? Creation. Genesis 1 is all about how God created a world that was designed for human beings and for human life. It's our home that he made for us. And as we went back to that sermon on beauty, remember that one? It is an incredible home that he's provided. And we live in the fallen state of it all, and it's still absolutely incredible. And of course, all through Genesis 1, God keeps declaring he made something, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then Genesis chapter 2 is all about how Yahweh God, the God who is with us and for us creates Adam. He gives him a wife. He gives him a garden filled with good food where they can just eat liberally from anything. This planet is a jewel in the universe. Just do a little bit of study in astronomy and just think of all the other planets and space is just death. Space has nothing for human life. We just cannot survive any of these places, the moon, Mars, Jupiter. We cannot. Out in space is death and this planet is a jewel that God made as a home for humanity. Within the context of Genesis chapters one and two, listen, it's utterly laughable that God is not good. Just read Genesis one and two right through, and it's most, all of it is supposed to be the goodness of God and giving us this planet and this incredible place to live and our very lives. If you want to wash your heart, of this doubts and suspicion about the goodness of God, just go for a walk this afternoon. Go out in creation and just take it all in and realize this is God's gift to us as humanity to live on this planet. And you people who live in Victoria, us people, you know it better than anyone. Because let's be honest, it's the best place. Okay, biased, all right. Creation should wash your heart of the suspicions towards God's goodness. Secondly, the consequences of believing the serpent prove that he lied about God's goodness. The consequences. So if the serpent was really our friend who was only seeking Adam and Eve's best interest, then it would follow that disobeying God's rules would have led them to greater freedom, greater happiness, greater flourishing, a better relationship with one another, and everything would have got better. But of course, that's not at all what happened, is it? When they ate, they immediately felt shame and they hid themselves. They quickly, that quickly turned into the first marital conflict when Adam blames his wife. God then drove them out of paradise. 
away from his presence. They have to work the ground, which is now hard. Childbirth is now painful. Go on and read Genesis chapters 4 to 11, and basically it's one giant downward spiral as Cain murders his brother Abel, and the whole earth is filled with violence, and this is what life looks like when you listen to the serpent. The consequences, the terrible consequences that resulted from believing the serpent prove that God has been misrepresented. His character was assassinated, and unjustly so. Creation should wash our hearts, go for a walk. The consequences of believing should also show us that the serpent has lied Just go listen to the latest news on Ukraine and whatever else is happening in the world. The consequences should wash your heart of this terrible lie. And then third and finally, Jesus proves that God is good. Jesus proves that God is good. Here's where it all comes together. Do you know what Jesus' name means? Do you know what his name means, quite literally? It means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. That's what his very name means. His very name means, to make it a little more full, the self-existing God who is with us and for us has come to save us. That's who Jesus is. The angel said, that must be his name. You must call him Jesus, for he will save his people. He is the God who is with us and for us, who has come to save us. Jesus is the greatest proof to us that God truly is good, and the serpent is a liar and the father of lies. Listen, would a God who didn't really care about us, wasn't really good, Would that God send his one and only most precious son to be brutally killed on a cross in order to save us? If God's not good, why would he do that? If God, in Paul's language, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, then can we not believe that he will also graciously give us all good things? I mean, he's given up his son. What more can you ask for? Listen, what else can God do? to prove that he is good, to give us this planet. And when we turn our backs on him and bring destruction into the world, he then gives up what is most precious to himself, his own son, to be brutally murdered upon a cross. He gives him up for us. What more can God do to prove his goodness? And then promises that one day he will bring us into a new Eden, a new world, where all things will be put right and we will dwell with our creator again. What more could God do? There's nothing left to do. That's why the old Puritan author John Owen put it this way. He said the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on God the Father, the greatest unkindness that you can do to him is, what do you think? Here's what Owen said, not to believe that he loves you. There was once a young man who worked in the mines and he was a Christian, a strong Christian man. 
And he got into an accident and he was bedridden for the rest of his life. And so he laid in his bed and he watched out his window as the whole world just passed him by. He watched as the, the young man <coughs> that he grew up with and had worked in the mines with uh, became strong. They, they got married. He watched them with their children. Eventually he watched them walking with their grandchildren. He saw all of this go by. He watched the company that he had worked for become very powerful and very rich and wealthy and thrive. And they did nothing to help him with his loss at all. He watched as his own body just began to wither. He watched his house, which was so small and tattered, just begin literally to fall down around him. And all his hopes for a better life in this life died. Then one day, this bedridden old miner was visited by a young man who had come to get to know him. And this young man kind of worked up his courage as he was talking to him. And he said, I hear that you believe in God. And you also believe that God loves you. And the old miner said, I do. And the young man said, how can you believe in such things after all that has happened to you in your life? Well, the old man hesitated and then he smiled and he said, yes, there's no question. There are, there are days of doubt. Sometimes it feels like Satan comes calling to my house and he, he seems to me to sit almost at the end of my bed where you're sitting now. And, and then he begins to speak to me. He points out the window uh, to some of the friends I used to have whose bodies, even as old men now, are still strong in comparison to my body. And it's like, like the serpent, like Satan says to me, does Jesus really love you? And then Satan makes me look at all my, my tattered room and my whole house, how it's coming down around me, and he makes me think about the fine homes of my friends. And he says, does Jesus really love you? And then he points me to a friend of mine who has a grandchild. This man has everything that I would ever want in this world and nothing that I actually have. And he waits until the tears begin to form in my eyes. And then he whispers in my ear, does Jesus really love you? And the young man was kind of taken aback by how honest this old miner was being. And he just said to him, well, what do you say when Satan speaks to you that way? And the miner again thought for a moment. He said, I take Satan by the arm and I lead him to a hill called Calvary. And there I point him to the nail-pierced hands, to the thorn-torn brow, and to the spear-pierced side. And I say, oh, how Jesus loves me. How? How can we believe that God is not good in light of the cross? How can we ever be suspicious of his good fatherly motives toward us? If we do, it is evidence that we have been tricked. We have been conned. The old magician's trick of misdirection has been played on us. For we've been misdirected to some difficulty in our life, some sorrow, something else is going on. Our, our vision has been misdirected and we have forgotten, we've lost sight of the biggest, most important thing, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. Look to the cross. 
and wash your heart of all the toxic oils that have collected on it over the years that makes you suspicious, makes you doubt the goodness of God. For the cross proves that God our Father is the God who is with us and for us. <clears throat> for if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, then how can we not believe that he will graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Forgive us, Father, for under all of our sins, under all of the issues that we have in our lives where we don't trust you, is this doubt of your goodness. It is, it is like oil on the feathers of a bird. And we cannot shake it off ourselves. We cannot remove it. It just seems to be in everything, through everything. So Jesus, Father, Holy Spirit, come and wash us, we pray. Help us to see how good you are in the created world you have given us. Help us to see that this truly is a lie from the consequences of what has happened since humanity turned its back on you. And help us to see in the cross of Christ the tremendous goodness that you have shown us, your true heart. You've shown it in action. Help us to see that. Wash us, we pray, so that we might sing of your love and we might trust you Trust your goodness, trust your love for us more each and every day. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe wherever you get your podcast. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Podcast.